Lord, I pray that my words might make sense because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many churches this morning will be beginning Lent by focusing on one of the three accounts of Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by the devil for 40 days. That's quite a a well-known passage because a lot of churches use it every single first Sunday of Lent. But this year during Lent, we're going to focus on John's Gospel. And one of the interesting things about John's Gospel is that it doesn't have a wilderness account of Jesus being tempted. So we're going to start Lent a little bit differently. We're going to focus on John and the journey that John takes us on for Lent. And I, and I think where we start today at least as well prepares us for the journey that is ahead. If you've been following uh, the amazing daily reflections that uh, Dr. Graham Leo has prepared for us on um, our website, or you might be getting a little email in your inbox, um, if you click on that, that's what you get, um, as a daily reflection on John's Gospel. If you're doing that, um, you will be starting to discover that John, and why Graham would have called it, and many others call it, the theological gospel because there's some big themes in and through it there's lots of imagery and it's carefully crafted to help us to see who Jesus truly is and what that means for us one of the weaknesses in the three-year cycle of bible readings that many Anglican and other mainline churches follow is that when it comes to John, we only get it in dribs and drabs. It's sort of like John fills the gaps when the other Gospels need a bit of a break or we need to get onto the theme of the, of the week. John's sort of used as spec filler. And there's a lot more to John than filler. And hopefully you'll find that as we go through this season of Lent. One of the things that I'm most looking forward to personally is spending some quality time with John. Uh, I studied a course in theological college called Johannine Literature, which basically means all the books that were written uh, by John. And I don't think I've spent as much quality time as I should since then on John, so I'm really looking forward to really digging into some of the things that John has to share not just this morning, but throughout Lent. But you might be wondering why this morning when Anne read to us, she didn't start at the very beginning of John's Gospel. Well, there's a reason for that. It's partly to do with the fact that if we wanted to do John and the whole of John's Gospel every single Sunday, we would need way, 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 way more Sundays than what we've got until up to Easter to cover the material that John has. And the other thing is that I couldn't decide on the bits that I could leave out in, in the way. But astute, um, the astute among, among us would have picked up where we started this morning is actually right in the middle of John's Gospel, chapter 11. Ten chapters before, ten chapters after. And we've done that for a number of reasons. And that's because from this point, Jesus does turn towards the cross. And we're going to follow Jesus' teaching and his ministry as he approaches the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection. 
and following his resurrection appearances after Easter as well. But also in much of ancient literature, if you wanted to know what the writer was on about, you didn't go to the beginning of the book and you also didn't go to the end of the book, you went to the middle. And that's where the main themes that the writer was uh, tackling resided. And I think you see that in John in this instance. Chapter 11 is full of the main themes that John is leading to and leading from. So I'm going to encourage you to, to go a bit hardcore this Sunday, not just to listen to my sermon, not just to read the daily reflection that Graham has lovingly prepared for us, but also go onto our website, maybe with a small group of people, and go through the whole of the chapter and reflect on it because it's full of such richness. And if you've never really looked at this chapter, I'm sure you'll be surprised at what God reveals to you as you work through it. Because I love chapter 11, and I've preached a number of sermons over the years, and, and of these 57 um, verses, I'm sure that there's a, enough sermons in these verses to last me the rest of my ministry and preaching life. But I'm only going to do one sermon, and hopefully it's not going to be too long a sermon this morning. You might have also uh, been aware that, that there's a lot, if you know the story, there's a lot leading up to this point that Anne brings us into and there's a lot leading from it. But I've specifically chosen the actual bringing to life bit of Lazarus. And a little bit like last week, there's a word and a phrase in this passage that really broke this whole chapter open and brought it to life for me and I pray that it can do the same for you it's in the first verse that was read for us the word disturbed really jumped out at me I started to think what could Jesus be disturbed about because the way it's described it's not the first time that he's disturbed he's disturbed again and he's not just a little bit disturbed, he's greatly disturbed, which disturbed me. And so what I did, I started reading other translations of the Bible to see whether I could get a little bit more sense out of it. And I picked up the NIV Bible, and I didn't really pick it up, I've got a website that I can go to that just flips between the translations. It's called Bible Gateway, if you ever want to to get to free versions of lots of different translations of the Bible. But Bible Gateway told me that the NIV translates that phrase as once more deeply moved. And I was a little bit more comfortable with that. It's a little softer than Jesus being disturbed. And I was aware that a few verses earlier that we see Jesus and the mourners and that really famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Or as the NRSV translates it with a few extra words, Jesus began to weep. And so in my mind that made more sense. Jesus was deeply moved to tears when he saw those mourning for Lazarus. And then as he approached 
the tomb, he was deeply moved again. So, yeah, that makes me more comfortable. Well, until I checked the next translation that I looked at, which was the message, which is very different. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him. We talked about anger and righteous anger last week. And it struck me that the emotion that leads to somebody weeping is generally different to the emotion of anger. It's almost like two separate, different emotions expressed by Jesus. So I thought to myself, well, I better do what every good biblical student does and go back to the original Greek. And I found this word. So repeat after me, one, two, three. It's actually a bit of a mouthful. Embrimomenos which when you look at the way it was used in the culture and the context, means to snort with anger, to have indignation on, to blame, to sigh with chagrin. Chagrin is a word that I, I don't think we use often enough in the English language, is it? To groan, to murmur against. It's a fairly big emotive word, isn't it? And as I was reading these words, particularly that murmuring against, I know it's probably not what I should have been thinking about, but the first image that came to my mind was an old cartoon that I used to watch as a kid called The Wacky Races and a character called Muttley. And in my, my messed up head, I started imagining Jesus murmuring against the people like Muttley used to snigger and... <laughs> forgive me sorry but while I was at it I also looked at the Greek word for the for, for weep from from the earlier verse Jesus wept what does that word actually mean well you'll be surprised to find that it means to weep and that's it but interestingly alongside that it asked me to compare it to another Greek word that was often used in similar circumstances. But John doesn't use it here. And that, that word, when I thought about it, actually seemed more appropriate because it meant to weep and wail. And what I know about Middle Eastern funerals is that part of the cultural mourning process is to publicly and loudly weep and wail. But John uses a different word to public weeping and wailing. Because the way that Jesus wept was different. So different that those around commented, see how he loved Lazarus. This wasn't just doing what was culturally appropriate. This was different. And all of this led me to ask, why was Jesus so emotional? Particularly if you go back to the beginning of this chapter 
as Jesus is talking to his disciples when they first get the news that Lazarus is sick, what does he say to his disciples? He says, well, don't worry about it. This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Days and days and days ago, Jesus knew that after this saga played out, Lazarus would not be dead. Which made me wonder, why didn't Jesus, when he first arrived, and he's not arriving to a group of strangers, he knew this family really well. Why didn't he, as soon as he turned up, say something like, stop your crying, stop your mourning, cheer up, everything will be fine, I'm going to make you happy again, take me to him, I'm going to show you a miracle. But he doesn't do that. He stops and he spends time with Martha. He profoundly weeps with Mary, Martha and the gathered community. And then in a sense of righteous anger, he gets to the miracle. Now, I suspect that Jesus had that sense of righteous anger because of the continuing doubt and self-focused expectation of the crowds. They didn't get it and what they wanted was just to serve themselves. I think that there is something far more striking to explore. And this is where I'm going to get theological, because John gets theological. But the big thing that jumped out at me was, although I absolutely believe that God is glorified in the miracle of raising Lazarus to life... I had to start to explore, is this the only way that God is glorified here? How else is God glorified in this whole chapter? And I found myself wrestling in that uncomfortable idea that God can actually be glorified in the pain, in the suffering in the weeping, in the righteous anger, and even in the death. It struck me almost all of a sudden that God is prepared to let some really big things die. Not just Lazarus, but we're beginning our journey to Easter God lets God's self die. Now, I want to be extra careful here. I am not suggesting that God made Lazarus die or that God causes undue sickness or suffering to make some sort of divine point. But if God created the natural order of things, and I do believe that God did, then everything begins it is born and with the cycle of life everything ends it dies 
And I'm sure we all know all too well how we rejoice at birth, at new things, new beginnings, particularly new babies. But if that's the case, surely God can be glorified at our endings, even in death. As much as as we get to the end of a life well lived, of a devout follower of Jesus, and say words like, well done, good and faithful servant. Can't we also, in the midst of sudden, unexpected or tragic death, recognize the Jesus who profoundly stops and weeps with us? Who is consoling us and calling us to console others? And as that happens, isn't God glorified? Don't we see the beauty of humanity revealed in the times of human tragedy? As a follower and believer of Jesus, I believe that that's God being glorified. God's work is not always as we expect it. God's glory, we see in this passage, is being revealed in the morning. It's revealed in the motivation and the miracle. I've just spoken about God being revealed in the morning, in the sadness, in the pain. And last week, I preached on God being revealed and glorified in righteous anger. And that's the motivation for the miracle. But let's have a closer look at the miracle. Because it too is somewhat unexpected. Neither Lazarus or anybody else gathered there seems to have to believe in Jesus' power or authority. Perhaps Martha, who earlier professed, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Maybe she's starting to get a little bit of an inkling. But the last thing the crowd seemed to have expected was that the dead man would emerge from the tomb after the stone was rolled away, walking out. They assumed that death was final. It was irrevocable. There was no remedy for death. In Jewish thought, after three days, the soul or the essence of the person had left the physical body. So being four days dead, there was nothing of what was former remaining in Jewish thought. The crowd, though, did not have to believe in order for Lazarus to be raised. God's intervention is not a measurement of how much or how earnestly we believe or behave. When God does intervene, 
it is only one of the many ways that God is glorified. But when it happens that way, it's actually not about us. It's about God being glorified. At the end of a funeral service, I say these words. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. These words are a statement that death is not the end. And the ultimate victory is when we enter eternal life. But in the meantime, as we wait for our own ultimate victory, don't overlook the reality that God continues to be glorified in so many different ways. But particularly in the pain and the suffering, in the tragedy, and yes, even in times of death. After the year that we have all had, as we rejoice towards the hope that Easter promises, I pray that in the midst of our challenge and our circumstance, that we might journey with both an awareness and an expectation that God will be glorified. And more than that, I pray that we might be a church that proclaims stories of that glory. When we just look for God's glory in the miracles, we miss so much of God at work. If we are only waiting for the miracle to experience God's glory, then we miss the invitation to enter just as Jesus did into the pain and the suffering and the tragedy and the death that is part of our world. Particularly at the moment, in a world that is crying out for the hope of Easter, we are reminded that we also have to enter to be aware and be confronted by the pain, the hard stuff. I pray that we've got the courage to accept this invitation in the knowledge that in the Holy Spirit's power, as we share with the world the truth that we know, that God does not go missing in hard times. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In hard times are the times where God calls God's people to show up and to get involved and to be aware of God at work so that God is glorified. Loving God, with so much pain and heartache and hardship around the world, it's so easy to try and find our own tombs to crawl away and hide in. Help us as we begin this journey of Lent to have a heightened sense of reminding 
that you are also in the pain, not just the joy. That you are with us as we come from death to life. But also that you call us to go with you into those places. Not so that we can get recognized, to get credit, but so that you might be glorified. And we ask that you might be glorified right here, right now, and into this week that we enter into. Amen. Let's continue to have a time of prayer as Gaina leads us.